adults and children and and that's pretty horrific as well and most of them are very vulnerable to being trafficked because they need to support their families um, uh, out of very desperate situation Welcome to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. This podcast is hosted by Senior Pastor Sean Zambros and Associate Pastor Nick Quintz. In this episode, they continue their conversation with Lauren Bethel, Global Consultant for Human Trafficking for International Ministries, about faith, missions, and the fight against human trafficking. Then I, in the next part of the story, then how I did become a global consultant was through the 80s. I, as I said, there were very, I, I couldn't find any other Christian organizations at the time that God called me to work with the New Life Center. But within a year or two, um, there were five Christian organizations that God had called into existence. And each one of those founders had a story that was not dissimilar to my very profound call by God to do something in various sectors, some in Bangkok, some in different parts of the country. And so our little network of projects glommed together. And then I watched through the early 90s, uh, middle 90s, I watched God um, calling people from all over the world. Um, This exponential growth of awareness about human trafficking and um, and God calling people into these very, very dark places of our world. And they would, people would come to me and do the research. How are you doing this? What do you do? You know, how, how does this relate? Da, da, da. And so then uh, by the late nineties, I was traveling, um, being invited to travel and consult about 30% of my time. Well, the mission board gave me permission for about 30% of the time. That's after I've been doing it for a while. My mantra has always been, it's better to ask forgiveness than ask permission. Anyway, so you get more done that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's true. Yeah. And then once you've done it, it's become a success. Then people are like, oh, yeah, we're happy to take credit for it. Um, And it, it, it works. You know, it's fine. I don't care who gets credit for anything as long as, you know, we're saving as many girls as possible from the ravages of whatever. And so um, I was traveling and the project was going crazy, growing and all. And I woke up and I think early 1999 with the thought, you can't do it all. You can't do it all. (laughs) You can't both run this project well and travel around the world. And, but I was seeing so many exciting things happening all over the world. But I mean, who's heard of a traveling missionary? I prayed that God would take away the passion I was feeling for the consulting and give me a whole renewed passion. I mean, the New Life Center was, what, 12, 13 years old by that time. And it needed some, it needed a new vision. It was sort of moving into its adolescent years and and I prayed, God, give me a new vision for the center, a new passion for the center, and just and find somebody else to do the traveling. And God did the very opposite, and really uh, took away, really took away my passion. Uh, I was shocked because I was like, 
this is where I was supposed to be for the rest of my life. And, you know, this was my identity. And so, uh, but it became very, very clear that I was supposed to leave the New Life Center and um, become a global consultant. Mm -hmm. There was only one other global consultant at that time at the mission board, and that was Walter White. And he had been traveling and talking about ministry to um, people of different cultures um, around the world. And uh, then there, and then um, I, I told my, my area director, he came, my area director came to town in April of 1999. And I, I scheduled a meeting with him. Right. I mean, we met at the airport as he landed and I was taking off for a little vacation. And I said, I said, Keith, I just, I need to tell you about how I feel God is calling me to do this consulting full time. That was my planned speech. And I thought, you know, by the time I convinced the mission board that I needed to do this and and then they found somebody to become my successor and I would have two or three, four years and uh of a transition and he said lord before you say anything just let uh, i just have to tell you that last week we had a, an interview for a new missionary candidate and we all sat around that she was like the most impressive candidate i've interviewed in a long time and we all sat around the table and we thought she um is just she would be perfect as the director of the new life center and maybe we need to let lauren get on with her consulting and by the way, she could, but she said, he says, we're not trying to, you know, um, if, if you don't feel that's where you want to do, she's, there's lots of other things she can do, but we just want to let you know that, you know, if you feel like this is what you want to do is do the consulting full time, then, um, just know that we have someone that would really be good as your successor. And of course, then I sat down, I just broke into tears and, sobbed and said, you know what I was going to tell you? <laughs> he says, oh, by the way, she could arrive in August. I was like, what? But as it turned out, um, she had to go through a year, more, more than a year of language school. So I had about a 20-month transition where I was still the director and then um, handed it over to her in, uh, right before Christmas in uh, 2000 and moved to Europe in 2001 because um, Europe is most central to the rest of the world for traveling to the rest of the world. I can get Africa, Asia, East Coast of the U.S. very easily. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it was, so in both cases, I mean, I've, I've often, as I've talked about my call, my first call to ministry to, to work with the New Life Center and my call to be, um, be a global consultant in both cases it was as if god opened the doors and all i had to do was walk through mm-hmm. it wasn't i you know i felt a a call but it was god literally providing the opportunity it wasn't me having to pound on doors or it was it was literally god provide i've been very i i thank god on many occasions that it, it was so clear. Um, and I, one of the reasons I think it was so clear is because these are hard topics too. And there have been many moments when I've had, I've had to say, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure that's really what you want me to do? Um, 
and you look back on it and you you know that that call that call could only be from god that's the only place it could have been from. Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah, yeah. I, it's interesting to me because I see you. I, I, it's funny because I I'm old enough now that people call me a pioneer every once in a while. But um, and so sometimes pioneer means you've been around for a long time. But I see you as pioneering, uh, right? Just in what you've shared so far in two different aspects, and one of them, of course, is uh, is the whole issue of human trafficking and uh, in particular prostitution. For me, you were the one who actually introduced me to what was going on. There, I didn't know the term back then of human trafficking, but it, uh, I happened to be at a conference that you were at. We were there for completely different reasons, but you were on that tour with the, the choir oh. from the New Life Center. And it was in of all places, Idaho. I mean, I had come up from California. You'd come from Thailand and we met in Idaho and you and Kim Brown yeah. uh, talking about this whole thing of the people from the, from the Hills being tricked to come into the city in order to support their families and, and all of that. And I had never heard of anything like that before. Yeah. I never had any concept of, prostitution prostitution like what you've said where these are women who are put in these positions for all different reasons ultimately to support their families and um so you were the i'm sure that i am not the only one who came to understand about human trafficking even before the term yeah uh, from you and from the work that you've done, and uh, and I think you know because of you, and then some of the others uh, that were at work in Thailand and all of that, um, we became uh, as American Baptists um, pioneers in this kind of ministry. That's right. The second pioneer thing I, I I see is the style of doing camp uh, doing doing missions as a global consultant. And the idea that you are working with local groups who are doing the work, but you're a, you're a consultant. And now that's become a, a real uh, viable model for doing missions in yeah. this day and age. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, I think a pioneer too is uh, someone that doesn't know any better. <laughs> So you end up doing things that, I, I mean, the thing is, you've also, I made a ton of mistakes because oh, I didn't know any better. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what else to do. Right. Um, I look back and I think, my goodness, why did you do it that way? <laughs> because you didn't know. You didn't have any precedence. But I must say that um, I, I, I enjoy that sort of figuring out what to do. Um, I think I'm much better at that than maintaining things. I'm not good at maintenance. I'm, I'm, I like to sort of go into a territory that's been unexplored and yeah. figure it out. And so when things become too routine, then that, that's what scares me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Wow. And I, I was talking to uh 
uh, Sean's son, Garrett, him and I had one of those conversations where six hours later, we'd realized we've been talking for six hours and he's, <laughs> he's really passionate about, about addressing this and all of that. And he, he mentioned to me and I, I, it shows how little I knew, you know, uh, he mentioned that sexual exploitation or sex trafficking is only a part of the whole kind of umbrella of human trafficking. Uh-huh. You know, for me, my first thought when I hear human trafficking, it's like prostitution or it's this sort of thing. But it, uh, he and you and him and others have basically said, no, it's such a bigger enterprise. It's such a huge thing. And and I, as as I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, wow, there's so many factors that contribute to this. And it's one of those things I, it's almost, it's, it just, it feels huge. And it's, um, and I think something I've noticed is it's, and maybe this is, it's a prejudice or it's an ignorance on, on my part, you know, growing up in, in the West in a small little insulated community in California. Um, human trafficking is a problem out there. And it's not a problem here in my city or in my metropolitan zone or even my country. And so do you have, you know, having done consulting work and being able to see the big picture, but also be involved in just the daily life of, of addressing and fighting this, how big is this problem? And just what, what do you see that, like, uh, yeah, it's almost, it's almost a huge question, but it's like, I can't even, I can't distill it. It's like, how big yeah. is this, yeah. is this problem for us as, as a church and as a country and as a people? Yeah. Yeah. Trafficking is huge. And it's, it isn't just sex trafficking, but it is, um, sex trafficking is some of the most dramatic parts of it but it's also labor trafficking I mean, there's lots and lots of people who are trafficked for labor and um, around the world and uh, adults and children and and that's pretty horrific as well and most of them are very vulnerable to being trafficked because they need to support their families um, uh, out of very desperate situations um, yeah, well, they, there's it's there's no way of even estimating. I mean, the, the numbers range from 27 million to 46 million people or slaves in this, which is many, many more than we're doing the slave trade. But still, um, and we don't, it, it's so, there's so much illegality and there's so much, there's so many gray areas. There's an awful lot of it that isn't black and white. Um, so it's, and so people get overwhelmed and they get, and so they, they just, they, they just, um, they blank out. It's like, well, it's just so big. So, and it's so dark and it's so horrible and there's nothing I can do about it. But um, I say you just wear, you just, you just start doing the research and you find out who's doing what, where, how, why in your own community. And now now, I mean, in the last 10 years in the United States, there, there are no communities that don't have some kind of awareness um, or, or organizations that are work. you know, you, can, you don't have to go very far and you'll find um, organizations that are working with these issues. And so you just start carrying on conversations with them mm-hmm. and you find out what they're doing and see how you can plug in. And any small ways that you can plug in is just, is always appreciated. I've joined since COVID, <laughs> I, I joined the board of a local organization here in Fresno. I'm, you know, I'm talking to you from Fresno. In Fresno, you know, I mean, people roll their eyes when you say you're from Fresno. As, you know, Californians who know, we have the second highest poverty rate in Fresno of any country of any city in 
California. And um, we also have had a, an incredible history of uh, racial prejudice here in Fresno. And um, yeah, it's, and we have a, a tons and tons of immigrants and immigrant communities are always uh, vulnerable to exploitation. And so I, I uh, had mentored a young woman here for many years from the time she was um, working as a missions youth pastor, missions pastor at my church, my home church here in Fresno First Baptist. And she started about 10 years ago, to much to my delight, she started an organization called the Central Valley Justice Coalition. And they do awareness raising in churches and they do all kinds. Of, but one thing they do is they do prayer walks. They just walk through um, community or parts of the city that really need a lot of prayer. And um, so I just recently, we did a prayer walk, all masked up. And so I just encourage people just, um, even if they just pray over newspaper articles, when they read about human, you can't open a newspaper and not read about human trafficking or a magazine or watch a television program or whatever. Just pray into it. Just pray into it. And I truly believe that if people just raise awareness in that way by just heightening their their awareness of the situation, that God is going to open doors for even more service um, if that's where God is calling them to be. So I try not, I don't use the numbers very much because it is, it's like they don't mean anything really. What means something is maybe that person who lives down the street from you that um, you see coming out of a house um, only occasionally uh, here in here in this community in one of the upscale communities there was a young woman who was kept in a home for 10 years um, who was in fact a victim of trafficking and um, you know hidden in plain sight yeah in, an eth in a, in a well-off community so um, let's just open our eyes to what's really going on in front of our faces yeah in our own communities yeah well, and one of the things that I, uh, the insights that I gained from Garrett, uh, my son, uh, is who Nick was just talking about, um, is uh, the idea of kind of, um, you know, the image of if you see people who are being, who are floating down <laughs> the river, you know, go upstream and find out who's pushing them in, you know, or how right. they're, some, somebody could have used that image better than I just did, but um, so is there something that you can do that would prevent people from being or help people to not be vulnerable? So even the idea of teaching kids how to read or making sure that people are, uh, who are struggling with food insecurity, I mean, all different kinds of ways that you can get involved in it. You don't have to be the one who's, you know, going in and rescuing people out of yeah. you know, brothels or, or whatever, but doing yeah. things that, that help people who are vulnerable. Exactly. Well, yeah. and that's my definition of human trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability. Right. The movement of trafficking doesn't have to be across any borders or even to another town. It's a movement from vulnerability to the exploitation. And so looking at vulnerable, who are the vulnerable in your own community? Um, a very close friend of mine here has a retired teacher 
And there's a program here in Fresno where retired teachers just read stories to children in vulnerable schools, schools that have a large percentage of vulnerable children. And we know what those schools are in all of our communities. We know that there are some schools that are more vulnerable than others, right? Have a higher percentage of vulnerable children. And so the police department started a program where they developed a curriculum around um, uh, 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 like um, just helping uh, children to be able to get along together. Mm -hmm. And um, so they go to first grade classrooms, actually. The police department said, by the time they're 12 or 13, it's too late. We want to start identifying vulnerable populations and from the time they're six, seven, eight. And so these retired teachers, they have lunch with the children in the schools. It's all a volunteer. And they're commissioned, actually, by the police department to go into these vulnerable schools, these retired teachers. I think how great to be able just to be a presence, another set of eyes for teachers so that there can be interventions into the lives of vulnerable children from the time they're very young. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, And that is also anti-trafficking prevention as well because we're addressing the needs of vulnerable. I mean, we know that the foster care system uh, is fosters vulnerability um, I mean, families who are being really, really good foster parents are also helping to cut down on the incidence of, of human trafficking. And also uh, organizations that are taking care of those who age out of the foster care system. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, I mean, oh my goodness, what a need we have there for the 17 and 18 year olds that age out and then have nowhere to go in the world. They have no primary relationships. What can we as a church be doing for those young people? Right. And sponsoring them in college or into a new, uh, an apartment or something, you know, and being there for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much we can do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that COVID has done for me, as miserable as I have been, um, having being separated from my cat and all my things in the Netherlands, and having lived out of a suitcase, because I, I don't know if you heard, if they heard me say this, on that I, I couldn't go back home to the Netherlands when the country's all shut down. Yeah. Uh, in March, I have been stuck here, um, unable to go home. <laughs> but the one, I mean, I was planning on making a transition back to the States anyway, but so this has, um, God has given me the opportunity to see a lot of ways that I can plug into my own home community here in the United States before I am able to travel, start traveling again, and to be more and more informed about the situations here. And that's, and I would hope that for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something you said that I, I've been, I, Call it a God thing. I like I like God things. This has been happening. Uh, Pastor Sean and I were talking about kind of the legacy of the church, and it's been kind of an ongoing conversation. How can the church not think about the pastor present only, but also what can we do that'll foster our our not our relevance, but our our witness into the future? You know, and that involves our children, our young people, mm-hmm. and you know, with a a little boy who can now is crawling, trying to crawl way ahead of schedule. Um, 
something my wife and I and Pastor Sean, but we've all kind of talked about this independently is the idea of raising him with an awareness of how to treat people and respecting women, especially. And if the church, and this gets back, it brings it full circle, the, uh, a robust theology of personhood, but especially a, a theology of, of, of relationality between uh, women and men and stuff like that. Uh, a theology that respects women and elevates their voices and stands alongside them and stuff like that. And that took me a long time personally to kind of wrap my mind around because I wasn't raised with, with that and didn't read the Bible that way. So thank God for my wife and the witness of uh, other pioneers. But there's this like your where, pastor, like my pastor, like <laughs> like my my professors in seminary, uh, like the the women who I listened to preaching when I was an undergrad, even though I was still figuring it all out. Uh, but there's this: if you raise a young generation, not of young boys only, but young people, you know, so uh, you know where women are at the pulpit, they're preaching, they're teaching, they're doing everything, and they see women as valued and their voices as valued, even into something mundane like a meeting. You know, the, a woman's voice is given precedence and everyone is silent and listens. Uh, it's something I've noticed that if we begin, and it doesn't address the present, you know, or, or anything like that, but maybe this is a way of also thinking of how the church can in, begin to head this sort of thing off to where we're raising a generation of young people uh, to where this sort of thing would just be unthinkable. And uh, it's one of those things that I think anyone, any parent can do that or foster parent or aunt or niece or, or, or someone like that can even just begin to do just over a cup of coffee. And it's, I think we forget that uh, our stories are being written now. It's not as if what you do now doesn't matter. In fact, everything you do matters. And I don't know, it's just, that gives me a lot of, a lot of hope just kind of building on what you both have said. It's it, not everything is lost almost, you know, even though it's a very big problem and there's a lot of stuff going on. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's that awareness that you're talking about that it starts with awareness and being willing to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Where'd you go to seminary? Oh, uh, I went to uh, Pastor Sean's alma mater. I went to Fuller. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask what uh, is, has there been, what kind of impact has this COVID had on uh, people who are struggling uh, with human trafficking. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I was supposed to participate in a discussion about that this morning uh, or this afternoon, actually. And anyway, I it, that it was just that. What what impact has COVID had on um, on the issues of human trafficking? What I know from people I've talked to um, who are in the field, uh, different places of the world, um, you know, one of the first things that got shut down by most countries were bars and nightclubs and massage parlors and various things, anywhere that there was like human contact. Um, and so in a lot of situations, in Europe and in, um, in Thailand, I know hearing the stories of people, um, the women who are working in prostitution um, largely were from, well, in Thailand, most of the women working in prostitution in Bangkok are from the Northeast. So most of them went home and went back to their families. And in Europe, most of the women working in prostitution, the legalized prostitution in most of the countries of Europe are from uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania. And they also went home. And so, but then those who could not 
go home were stuck. And there was some sort of illegal street prostitution and um, the brothels were closed. Um, and so, and I don't know what the situations were um, for people who were back in their villages and with their home families, but I do know in community-based cultures, uh, people take care of each other and they figure it out. Uh-huh. You know, no matter what their circumstances, they generally figure it out somehow. They may live very poorly, but those those communities just really come together and take care. But for immigrants who could get back, African immigrants who are working on the streets in many of the countries, it has been very, very, very difficult. I do know that the brothels in Europe, because the Europe situation got under control, Mm-hmm. Reasonably, it was it hit there first uh, before it did hit the United States, but still they pretty much flattened their curve, <coughs> and uh, the brothels are opening back up again. Now um, there is no tourism or very little tourism, so <coughs> what their business will be. Some of the women, um, I have heard stories about how some people have made the determination that they will not. They will try to find some other kind of work. During the time that they were not working, they found that they wanted to do other things. Um, So they will find some other kind of work if they can. As far as trafficking, as far as the kind of trafficking that we think of as forced labor, forced, I, I, I really don't know. Yeah, the situation is. All I do know is in the the world of prostitution. Lots of people were, were not working. Right. Which is a very interesting phenomenon and something that we'll have to really look at carefully. Yeah, see what the result of that is. See the result of it is that how many actually do return? Uh huh. That don't return. Yeah, that will be interesting. It'll be very, very interesting. Yeah. It's, a, it's just such a, an amazing time i mean who would have ever thought and nobody could have written a novel that that would have described anything that we've been going through during this time thank you for listening to the faith without fear podcast a ministry of the first baptist church of redlands california our music was composed and written by garrett zambros If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to browse our website at www.fbcredlands.org where you'll find our sermon series and links to our YouTube channel.